Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Our guest on today's podcast is Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. His name might sound familiar to you as he was a recent guest of Michael's on an episode titled Turning the Tables on Injustice from June of 2020. Today, he and Michael will be discussing his most recent book, Might from the Margins. Now, to summarize their conversation, I'd like to simply read a paragraph of what Dennis wrote in a recent Christianity Today article of the same title. He says, When a simple slogan such as Black Lives Matter is denied, scrutinized, and even vilified by vocal white Christians, it becomes increasingly necessary to assert that God loves marginalized people and that we must grow in love of ourselves. Love is power. It emboldens us, motivates us, and sustains us to fight against injustice. Jesus embodies love and power and stands in solidarity with the marginalized. In him, we might find might from the margins. Now, Michael and Dr. Edwards' discussion is a timely and thoughtful conversation uh, that pointed me towards deeper introspection and empathy. Now, before I hand it over to them, I'd like to give a quick shout out and say a word of thanks to those who've taken the time to review Restoring the Soul and even have reached out to let us know you're out there. Special thanks to Steve Stevenson of the Cincinnati area. We were able to get together recently over breakfast, since we don't live too far from each other. Now, that might not happen every time somebody reaches out, but it's good to hear how this podcast and conversations have impacted you in a personal way. So without any further delay, here's Michael John Cusick's conversation with Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards, might from the margins. Congratulations to you. Last time we talked, you were gracious enough to speak with me after the the murder of Mr. George Floyd. And I was excited because your book was forthcoming. Might from the margins, the gospel's power to turn the tables on injustice. And that title 
Mike from the Margins, I think, is is a wonderful summary of the gospel. Mm. But I want to just have a conversation, brother to brother, about yeah. really the heartbeat of this book and sure. uh, where that came from. But I do want to yeah. start with a statement that as I prayed, I prayed that God would protect you yeah. and your loved ones, because you wrote in the book to speak about these issues as a black man and to speak about the idea that it's those in the margins, those that are oppressed, disenfranchised, that they are the powerful. And there's a threat there to the people in power. And so you said that it's traumatizing. Will you talk about that? What's what's the trauma and how are you handling that, especially since the book came out? Yeah, thank you very much. I am. Um... I, I think, you know, part of the um, reality of trauma for me may be a fa- uh, maybe my age is a factor in that because there are some younger folks who who go who feel uh, even more confident or emboldened to speak uh, truth to power. And they they seem to maybe handle it better than I <laughs> than I did when I was younger. So I'm actually grateful for them. I would say the trauma comes in in the way you um you know, maybe it's sort of like a subtle form of PTSD because because when I talk about uh, power and privilege, I can't help but to remember things that happened to me, things that were said to me, the way I was minimized and pushed aside. So you, to some small degree, you know, relive those things, right? And then also the many occasions I can think of where I was invited to speak in places like churches or camps and such and grateful for the opportunity, especially as a young guy who needed the honoraria, you know, it wasn't just about the money, but you were like excited to use your gifts and then find out that something that you said that was, that was kind of subtle or even just almost inconsequential about mission or about working together across racial differences or something like that, you know, triggered something in somebody. So after the service, they have to come right up to you and they're frustrated and they're angry and they let it out on you. And sometimes the person who invited me is standing right there and says nothing, you know, it's their, it's their church member or it's their person, but there's, but they're not going to take the risk. They let me take the hits. And then I, then I leave, you know, and it's, it's so I've, I've had uh, things happen on a, you know, within a denomination at churches. So it's just a lot of stories like that. So I think the trauma is in re recounting or reliving those things uh, to some degree, you know, Uh, I'll, I'll just say it like that. I would like to um, read the first paragraph for <laughs> epilogue. And, um, oh, weird, the epilogue. Okay. Yeah, weird place to start an interview, but I think right. you can set the tone. Sure. Um, you said, I've often preached and taught in predominantly black spaces. I have also preached and taught in predominantly white contexts, as well as in multiracial and multi-ethnic ones. In those latter spaces, I have felt pressure to end my presentations in a way that does not anger or offend white people. Everyone loves a happy ending. We all want to believe that Christians will identify and combat injustice. I believe that people of color do not owe white people a happy ending. It is not our task to monitor or protect white people's feelings. Offending people isn't the goal, but truth can hurt. Again, that's like Without reading the rest of the book, that can sound very in your face. But I want to confess up front, this book caused me pain. And it Mm. caused me pain because um, Mm. it challenged me 
but it forced me to stop and say, Lord, um, I repent. I, I, I say, I want to be a person who, um, who sees this reality that might is in the margins and the book ended and there was the call to love and talking about the power of love, but there isn't a happy ending. Um, because it's just a matter of days, weeks, or months until there's another black man that's shot mm-hmm. and um, the reality that you live with. So what is the truth? If you say yeah. truth hurts, what is yeah. the truth that you would want a reader to get from this book? And knowing that you seem to primarily be writing to people of color to realize that they don't have to wait upon whites, but that they have the power from the margins. Yes. yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, I appreciate that you caught that in your second sentence there about uh, how folks who have been on the margins that I actually am trying to to address us because um, I think many times, especially in Christian circles, there's been a sense that we have to we have to get permission, we have to kind of earn this right to be able to speak prophetically to situations, and we have to do it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody or doesn't make them feel badly. Or so we wind up dancing around looking for the right language, looking for the right moment, trying not to trigger anybody's anger. And, and a lot of our own posturing is so that white folks can hear us because the power rests there to say, I, I'll dismiss that person if they sound a little too angry to me, or I'll dismiss that person if they didn't, you know, parse that verb the way I would have done it. So, so there's a sense that we have to make sure that we're really extra good in our messaging so that we can get an audience. And I say, you know what, <laughs> That's, there's a lot of work in that. And part of it is that rather than waiting for that uh, okay and that signal and that permission, many of us have already been well-educated. We've already gotten a view of what um, this world is like. We have experience, we have education, we have resources, we have a whole cultural uh, world behind us and community that we're part of. And rather than waiting on folks, I'm asking that we join in solidarity and, and live out our Christian faith boldly so that it, it does become an indictment on those who are not um, uh, embracing this marginalized Jew, Jesus, and living in this way. And so it becomes, yes, an indictment, a prophetic indictment, but it also raises up a model, a model of what does it mean to, to live with injustice and not retaliate uh, in the way of the world, to live with realizing that our weapons are not carnal. So I do think that... Um, that's really the call of the book is to say we have something here and it's not it's not designed. Yeah, it is. Might be, maybe it is kind of an in your face message. And I was I was trying really carefully to um, to think about every time I was writing a chapter. I, I have adult children and my kids have been saying to me for years, Dad, you need to write that book and and tell the truth. And, they, and, and one of them said and name names. <laughs> and I said, well, look, I'm not out to shame anybody. So I held off for years. I'm talking years. And uh, and then finally, after I had done the first Peter commentary, I realized, you know what, there's something theologically rich here and saying, here's this marginalized Christian community. Uh, called people of the dispersion, diaspora. And yet they're the ones who are called to live this faith out in such a way that uh, Peter will say it in different ways. But one of them is that people will think it's strange that you don't run to the same excess that they do, that, that you, that you, that the slaves even are exemplifying the way of Jesus, that women are showing us how to, how to witness 
uh, without words, that there's this sense that those who have been alienated, not citizens or not full citizens, they become the ones who are actually compared to Jesus. So I said, you know, that that's a theological message and it has practical implications for how we live here. So I appreciate that you caught that. I think the in your face nature of things is is probably just the way prophetic words hit sometimes. And I can't I can't always know how that's going to be. And I, and when I was younger, I used to think it would, it would result in an amen. And let's, let's get in the fight together. And then I, you know, I guess I realized that, no, that wasn't always the response. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it was, let's not hear from Dennis again, but anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, at the risk of backpedaling, um, just, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to say that in your face is not always bad, you know, in sports, mm-hmm. we'll yeah. stand up and cheer when yeah. it's an in-your-face in move, if it scores points. And, um, I, it, yeah. it was not an unkind in-your-face. Mm. Yeah, yeah, where, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, you were very gracious in everything that you said. And in, in fact, you did name names. But I also thought that you named systems and institutions. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah. would have been easy to make individuals. You, yeah. you quoted uh, a number of times and referenced Frederick Douglass, the former yeah. slave and abolitionist. And I didn't know a lot about him, but it was really striking to me that um, a, a few hundred years ago in those writings, people were speaking about the very same issues that we yeah. have today. Right? right. So it didn't take modern sociology and thousands of dissertations. And in, in particular, you said quoted Frederick Douglass saying that what we need to experience in our country is the true Christianity of Christ that stands in deep contrast to the Christianity of the land. Yeah. You comment on that? Yeah. Isn't that something I, uh, I had been influenced as I was working on the book. I took a, I took some time to read a, a fairly recent biography of, of Douglas by uh, Blight is his name. And uh, it was just so intriguing and brought some more things to light that I didn't know. And, and, uh, and one of the things that Blight does in there is, is discuss how, how Douglas saw himself in a prophetic role like Jeremiah. And, and he compared himself at different times to Jeremiah. But there was this sense that he knew well, especially since he got close to political power eventually, but he knew well how power was operating. He also saw the hypocrisy of, of uh, Christianity and how it, how it really was a veneer on the plantation. So he could very well indict uh, 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 the folks who were saying Jesus, reading scripture, going to church, even going through the motions, yet could dehumanize a whole group of people who also were growing in faith. And, and so technically were sisters and brothers, but weren't treated as such. So he saw this Christianity of the land and that the Christianity was empowering, was used to empower uh, a nationalistic kind of a framework and an economic system, all that was behind the building of our country using slaves. And he saw that as a contrast to the way Jesus lived. And so I think that that, to me, that spoke to, to this current climate that we're uh, struggling to negotiate. So yeah, he's a prophet, but he's a prophet who saw what Christianity was doing practically in the country. And through the couple other writings that you had there, I could see how Dr. King and other of the 1960s activists and mm-hmm. prophetic uh, civil rights heroes mm-hmm. had really drawn from a lot of that same kind of writing of, of people yeah. that done deep thinking and writing. Right. Uh, Dennis, there's another thing related to just understanding the whole idea of the might from the margins and the power mm-hmm. of the powerless. 
Um, there was a, a Catholic priest I once knew who was highly educated. Mm-hmm. He actually had a law degree. He was a registered nurse and he was wow. a Catholic priest and he wow. ended up working on death row and uh, in Northeast Ohio. And he wrote me a letter as we corresponded. And, and he said, Michael, the men that I minister to on death row are my spiritual directors. And I scratched my head and I said, wow, those must be some really, you know, godly people and seminary educated guys that must have gotten convicted for murder innocently. And as the correspondence continued, he unpacked what that meant, that people who suffered greatly, many whom perhaps were wrongly accused, but who were literally facing the ultimate powerlessness of, of death and who needed grace and forgiveness, that they were the ones that spoke to him of the heart of God and the deep things of God. And that's really, really what you're saying in this book. It is. And I, I mean, I didn't know that story and I don't have the, uh, so I wrote out of my experiences. So I'm, I, I embrace any stories like that. They're not my personal experience, but it resonates exactly with what I'm trying to say. I I'm, Oh my goodness. That's just so enriching. Cause I think it's truth. I, I, I may have mentioned it in the book cause it was around that time. I spoke at a church in a, a in another state and one of the pastors, she said, uh, speaking of this refugee group that had settled in her in her city, and many of them were Christians and started coming to her church. She said, we have so much to learn from them. And I, I, I appreciated that posture because she didn't say we have so much to give them or to teach them or but it was how much we could learn from them, because these were folks who had suffered, been displaced, like. I talk about being a uh, diaspora Christians. They they're away from their homeland, yet they are uh, practicing their faith. And in a way that because of their suffering, because of it, they are able to demonstrate something about the character of God and the way of Jesus. So I think that is story about the uh, spiritual direction coming from incarcerated people. I just think that is like right on target. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. I'll often say, uh, not to trust any Christian leader that hasn't suffered, failed, been oppressed, or somehow boast in their weakness. Wow. And, um, there again, the, the, not only people of color, but you also talk about women yeah. and other, other people, including the disabled and yes. the you know, a lot of the, the people that we have isms for, but they're actually people, but they're right. all included in this. Uh, oh, thank you. Margins. Thank you for catching that. I, I, I'm, I'm getting invited to speak in places and it's, and it's often about, because I, I do come at it as an African-American, but I appreciate that you caught that because even though I can't speak from those locations, um, but I can see that there's a resonance with my own experience in folks um, who have been marginalized because of, yeah, because of gender, sex, uh, 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 physical well-being and so forth. And you saw that. So thank you for catching that. I, I want all of us who have been kind of on the sidelines, as it were, to rise together. Yeah. Uh, I said that I was going to repent and, and not go through my list of questions because, you know, if I was in one of your classes at North Park Seminary, I would just want to all semester long um, ask you questions. And I, I sure I really hope that you get a chance to teach a course mm. somewhere on this book, wow. just unpacked all semester. So wow. I'm going to I'm going to deviate from the questions and just talk sure. about as a white man, how I yeah. could relate to the book and one of the reasons why I was drawn. Okay. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and sex addict, and I wow. have 
a mental illness, bipolar disorder. And I've, I've struggled with all of that for years, and I have a, a fair amount of sobriety. But you may be familiar as a pastor that the first step of the 12 steps of, of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is we admitted that we were powerless over blank and that our lives had become unmanageable. And so I am required every day to basically say, I'm powerless. And there's a thousand ways where I can pick up power, where I can try to believe in my own mind that because I've written a book or two or have a podcast that I'm something special. But that's where, even though I'm white and you're black, there's a sense in which I just go, yeah, I'm powerless. And it seems to me that another prophetic call of your book is far beyond race or any of the isms, there's this call to, can we all admit that we're powerless and meet there? That just really deeply spoke to me. And so I felt like I was reading the book that I was with you, as well as empathizing with the history that you unpacked in the theology. Hmm. Oh, my. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I, I know that your podcast is about these deep things, restoring the soul. I uh, but to be able to share that is is a uh, is a very bold and brave thing. So thank you for sharing about yourself, and also for seeing the points of resonance. I'm I'm actually working on something else. It's going to be a little while, but I'm trying to do a, a work on a book on humility, and that's exactly I think you just framed it there, right there. That's that's part of the universal place is to say we're helpless. And it's this whole hard for humans to do this, I think. Um, and we get messages, of course, that try to get us not to do it. But but I think that that's a place and that all our help comes from the Lord. Um, so I think that that's, yeah, I appreciate that you see that resonance there. I, 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 and then to add a, a little piece to it is then that makes me now respect in a, in a fresh new way when you would speak into whatever, so what, you know, say whatever uh, situation somebody might be experiencing that's analogous to what you've experienced and what you're dealing with, then that, that brings the power, that power that you have to speak into that has come from the weakness. So I think, yeah, I appreciate how you can see the connection to the book there. Thank you. Wouldn't it be refreshing if one of our uh, leaders today in the midst of, um, the chaos in the world, whether it be racism, the pandemic, um, the economy, you know, on and on and on and on and on, got up and basically said, um, I have no idea how to fix this or what to do. And I have no idea what's right and wrong. And I react and I think I'm not a racist, but I probably am. And But let's all sit down and listen to one another and meet at that point of our helplessness. And are yeah. we, you know, I, I'm chuckling because our way our society operates, and I'm going to say the way even Christianity operates, is that we don't like it when people uh, confess weakness because some for some reason, and I, I think this is actually an American thing, but I, I may be wrong because I'm not a historian, but I feel like it's an American thing to say we have to project strength all the time. So that filters into the way we do church. So then rather than have a leader who's honest or open or even vulnerable, use that word, we want that person to project strength because then we think, well, that somehow, you know, projects our strength in some way. What I mean, I'm not asking leaders to always bleed all over people. I mean, I'm not asking for that, but I am asking 
for what you just said, that would be refreshing because that there's something invitational in that. There's something that invites us to come together and, and for, for our communal uh, healing. I think that's what Eucharist is about, but for some reason we don't, we, we, we're not always able to see that because our society won't let leaders be vulnerable. And then we see it in the political arena, right? We've got, uh, I'm not going to try to get political here, but we, we seem to have Christians who like it when a leader says, I know everything, I know more than experts and I, and I'm better at this than, than everybody else. And for some reason that causes like this excitement rather than a caution that says, wait a second, how, how is that a good thing? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the the absence of vulnerability in a leader being able to uh, be real about their weakness means that I really don't need the other. I can be independent. I can be self-sufficient. Yeah. And wow. I think that, right. um, you know, as I just talked about a little bit of my story, it might sound like uh, weakness equals bleeding out and being vulnerable and telling mm-hmm. your dirty laundry. But I think it, it, it sometimes just means, um, and tell me if you what your thoughts are on this, yeah. I'm, I may be right as opposed to I am right, or I think this is the best way, as opposed to, well, we've got to go this way because I need to be elected or I need to stay in my pastoral leadership position or tell me what you think and giving input. (laughs) I like that. Um, I think you're right on the target. I remember one of my early uh, years of teaching uh, Bible. So I used to be a math teacher. And after my got my doctorate, I was, and I've been a pastor along the way, I started teaching Bible. So just about 20 years ago. And, uh, and a student asked a question and I pondered for a while and I said, you know, I don't really know. I said, let me check that out and I'll think about it and look, you know, and come back to you next week. And, you know, later on, he said to me, I never had a teacher say they didn't know. And I mean, a, a preacher or a pastor say they didn't know. And I thought, really? I said, how could they know everything? I said, I said to me that that's you, when you ask a question, I don't know the answer to. That's awesome, you know, for a student to do that because it means we're both getting sharper in this. We've got stuff to investigate. We're looking into stuff. And how can a teacher pretend to know everything? The more we know, the more we realize we don't know. So I'm with you on that. I mean, I think you articulated very well. Uh, it to me, it's refreshing. And then I feel certainly empowered if I if I'm with somebody who's a leader and they say I don't know about this or I didn't know this or I or I'm still learning such and such. That makes me feel like oh good. I'm okay too. Cause I'm on a journey too. And uh, so I think there's just something unifying in that. Yeah. I, I would wish for that kind of humility on the part of, of uh, well, everyone, but I certainly hope that Christians could see that as a sign of strength and not weakness. Yeah. Well, I'm reminded that in second Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul says that he boasted in his weakness. His weakness. And, you know, we'll say, Oh, here's the, here's the, uh, criteria for being a great leader, but I never hear anybody say the criteria for being a great leader is to boast in my weakness. Yeah. And there, you know, even um, researchers and there's a a little bit of a movement, popular writing like Brene Brown's Mm -hmm. material on shame and the power of vulnerability is that by, by leading with our weakness and speaking out about our limitations and vulnerabilities that uh, people are drawn to that and they trust us more deeply. Yeah, I, I agree. I found in my last pastorate, I came into a, follow, a situation where I followed a really powerful rock star preacher, and he's great. And uh, But I, I struggled because I'm not him, and people wanted me to be him. And I realized that it started with my staff team. Uh, the staff started to change over, right? I mean, I, that happens, but some people were annoyed that it was happening. They were losing associate staff that were there before me. 
Um, but I became as vulnerable as I could be. I, I shared personally. And now I, I, I'm, I'm gone from that church two years and I still have wonderful connection with folk who, who I think appreciated that part about me. And there's other friends that I have in ministry over the years that tell me stories of how I did that. And I didn't even remember. And they're telling me stories of how that drew them close to me when I was able to show them that um, not that I'm lost and don't can't figure anything out, but it's just that I'm open about where I've been weak and what I, what I struggle with or, or, or where I fall short. So I think that's an, an important part of, of Christian development. I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily conscious of those things uh, so much as I was going through the book, but it hit me at certain points because I had preached a series of messages from second Corinthians that I called a theology of weakness. And that was years ago. And a friend of mine reminds me of that series I preached. And then I have a friend, a new Testament uh, scholar, Timothy Gombis, G-O-M-B-I-S. I'm going to shout him out because I just did a, a, a blurb for a book that he's going to have coming out, I think next year about Paul's theology of weakness and not just from second Corinthians, but it hits at much of what you're talking about. So I, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to that hitting the shelves. Yeah. I want to have you tap into the heart of the theology of the book mm-hmm. because yes. um, Mike from the margins is a theological framework that explores and celebrates the power of the marginalized and the power of marginalized communities. And you didn't make this up sociologically and then look for some scripture to baptize on top of those ideas. (laughs) You, you. as a New Testament PhD theologian, seminary professor, went to the Gospels and the New Testament and the Old Testament. You built this framework and Hmm. built upon others' frameworks. So talk about uh, the nature of this, especially in the life of Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus, and in the whole idea of the kingdom. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll do the best I can. I was one of the verses that I used to frame the conversation, or at least the analysis. Even though I don't, I don't do a, a hard exegesis of it in the book, but I reference it a few times. And that's Paul talking to the Corinthians, a church that I think a lot of Christians are familiar because they had their foibles on display. Yet they're in a city of uh, of uh, of of contrast, you know, slaves and free, rich and poor and all kinds of things happening there, but they're fragmented. But then when Paul talks about his own presence, he talks about how he comes to them. He says uh, his own weakness, but he also talks to the community and says in first Corinthians, uh, this is chapter one, verse 26, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. So there's this sense that um, Paul is acknowledging that this is how it was how it works with God, right? He's chosen the things that are in the margins. But not, but not only does Paul say that, Jesus exemplifies that in his own life, his own way of being. So I reference um, uh, Howard Thurman uh, from 1949's, his book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, which by the way, I didn't get exposed to in seminary. I came to it later. I, I didn't have, I don't think I had a book by anyone uh, who wasn't a white male assigned to me in seminary. So I came to that a little bit later than some. And and in the process, I thought, wow, he's speaking to us, you know, 70 years later or whatever, uh, as I think about it now. Um, 
And so, and I realized that uh, when he talks about people whose backs are against the wall, that's his phrasing, that he says, he's, he's showing us there in that book too, that the, those who have their backs against the wall are, are resonating or in solidarity or connect with this Jesus in a special way. Because here we have a Lord whose back was against the wall being, as I said, a marginalized Jew, to borrow from a John Meyer's uh, work called a marginal Jew. But Jesus was, um, was part of a, a group of people who were under an oppressive power in Rome who, while the, their religious uh, life functioned around Palestine throughout the whole Roman Empire, we're talking about people who, did, who had to watch their step, had to be careful, and who could be subjected to the, to the whims of Roman, of Roman leadership and power. We see that with the apostles in the book of Acts and them getting flogged and beaten and thrown into prison for just preaching the good news and threatening the uh, power structure. So, so what I'm saying is we're seeing that thread. So I just gave you a little bit from Jesus, a little bit from Paul, a little bit from Acts, but there's this thread in scripture of God speaking. And, and if we went to the Old Testament, we'd find prophets and people who are unnamed, who wind up being the very ones who are the heroes of the story, the very ones who are speaking the truth of God in situations, you know? So I think it's a thread. I think it's the way that God works. Uh, we could probably riff off of this for a couple of hours, but even, <laughs> even something as simple as that God became incarnate as a baby, you know, yeah, wow, he could have, right. He could have been born uh, at 33 with big muscles, right. Developed <laughs> and then died on a cross, but that everything about the story of incarnation and being in the world was about vulnerability. Oh my goodness. I think that's awesome. I didn't even think about the baby part. I was just thinking in Philippians two, you know, the whole, that, that whole kenosis, right. Um, where Jesus um, uh, doesn't use his equality with God as for any personal gain. Right. So he's given up privilege, but the way you said it there, it's not just privilege. I mean, he's becoming vulnerable, vulnerable to human beings. I mean, as a baby, as a child, vulnerable to the care of, of human parents, all of that. So I think you're right on target. And so for me, that is the way, right? That's the way Jesus operated in the world. And I believe he calls his disciples to, to do likewise. And, and I, I'm sure that looks different in every generation and every uh, century. It has looked different. And what does that mean? But the basic idea is still there, is that we are people who function uh, like Jesus in, in the world. One of my mentors is a 70-year-old Franciscan. I'm going to do a shout-out for Father John. Oh, awesome. And um, he's taught me a little bit about Francis. And uh, the Franciscans have this theology of vulnerability. They say that God literally put himself in the hands of men and women, first through the crib, then through the cross, and then through communion. Oh, wow. And through the crib, he's literally dependent and um, powerless. Through the cross, he's choosing to be humiliated and suffering. And then through communion, and these are my words, not his, there's literally this sense of, I'm going to let you eat me up and become bread. I'm going to become something ordinary and simple. Mm -hmm. And in all of that, there's this, this powerlessness. And I mean, here's the obvious point in, in your book. It's that that is not shameful and a failure. It's actually like the glory of God. And, and that's the kingdom of God, which, which is why this book is so, as well as in your face, it's so filled with life and hope. 
Oh, amen. Thank you for seeing that. that that's awesome. I, and I love the Franciscans. So there's something that's awesome in, in that picture because the power is so contrary to the way of the world, right? The way the, the world has to have a coercive, oppressive power and Jesus' power comes from under, right? I mean, he, he subverts those power systems through love, through the, the vulnerability we talked about, all of that. But but I don't want that to say that he, he wasn't bold enough to speak, right? So that's that's my call to the folks in the margin is, is that we're not, we don't have to be violent. We don't have to be uh, um, uh, uh, coercive like the way of the world. But we also speak boldly like Jesus did. We, we can declare the truth of God's word like the apostles did. We can, we can live this communal life where there's neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free or male or female. We can live this healthy uh, life of Christian community. And that becomes our witness to the world, even though people say, wait a second, there's nothing powerful about that. Exactly right. The power comes because of the Holy Spirit and because of us trying to live the way Jesus lived. So. Yeah, I, I, I tried not to name too many names, but I tried to name the power structure that I think, you know, kind of contradicts what I just said. And so that that I think has to be called out. And then the new, better way has to be uh, uh, centered on Jesus and the way Jesus lived. Yeah, thank you. I, I uh, you know, like to long before there were uh, memes, I would always think about, oh, that's a great line that this person wrote. That would be a great T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> So one of the great lines was that you're setting out in the book not to change the complexion of the church or, or the skin color, but to really change the operating system that's there. You remember saying that? Yeah, it's something not- like that. That sounds like me. <laughs> so what's the operating system? That It sounds like, uh, just to launch off of what you said a minute ago, about yeah. how, how we view the whole structure. Yeah, so the way we seem to operate now like I said, this kind of almost a corporate model. We get the most powerful people. We defer to them. We have a kind of a, a imagined uh, ideal leader, you know, um, and and we we operate with where we look like a business in some ways. And I'm not saying churches don't have business components to it, of course, but but I guess what I'm saying is that the operating system seems to be one that relies on the same kind of power that the world operates with monetary clout, um, coercive kind of, uh, uh, power. I even, and this is something I don't, didn't say in the book, but I, it's one of these little pet peeves I have as a, as a, a Christian in that I've sat under leaders and even worked under leaders who have this ability when they're in front of people to massage the truth in such a way that it sounds like they're really selling how great this thing is, this ministry or this organization and such. And you're sitting there knowing that they're not telling the whole truth. And and there's something about this way that we have to be convincing salespeople and all of that kind of stuff. So to me, that's that's the that's a bad operating system. But I think we also have operated in a way that we've exploited people who are on the margins. We have uh, yes uh, ignored the gifts of women. We have allowed uh, racist structures and and systems to to operate and not denounce them. So there so there's that operating system too, right? This is the way that things have been. So you could have and it's happened. I mean, I don't I'm not even making it up. I mean, if if something as innocuous as saying black lives matter, right? We say this phrase and rather than people saying, "Oh, of course. Yes. Let me see how you have not been mattering in our society." No. They take a defensive posture. 
start to deconstruct everything about the phrase or about the organization that prompted the, the, the hashtag, uh, try to dismantle. And it's like, oh, my goodness, which is simply crying for some dignity and recognition. And this gets deconstructed to turn into some kind of subversive Marxist act or something. And I think that's that's what I mean. It's like the church just can't hear the cries of the of the weak and instead has to figure out a way. You know, let's keep ourselves in power. And let's and let's ignore these people, because in the long run, they they don't have the right theology or something. So it doesn't really matter. And I, I in fact, I don't even know what the long run is. I, I can't figure out what the end goal is of not acknowledging and respecting uh, all of God's people. So I, I don't I don't know what that end game is. So, um, yeah, anyway, I might have I might have uh, gone on a little tangent from your question, but <laughs> But okay. my, my whole it. life is going on tangents. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, can I just ask you, how does it affect you as a man, a black uh-huh. man, when yeah. you hear a Christian in particular say, "Well, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, but all lives matter," or when you yeah. see that T-shirt or that yeah. that trope? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll I'll let your listeners know. I'm 60. I recently turned 60. I mean, just a few weeks ago, and. uh and I have to say, you know, it doesn't, the hurt and pain is not as there as much for me as it is for my sons and my grandsons, because it says to me that we haven't progressed much. You know, you can say that to a 60 year old guy and I'm like, okay, but to say that to 30 something year old men and to their children and to be dismissive of them, uh, that's what hurts me because, it, because there's this sense that you don't understand the legacy and the history of of what uh, white people have done to to almost everybody of color in this country, whether it's African-Americans or anybody who's immigrated here. Um, it's just like it's, it's sort of ignored and, and, and minimized. And that, to me, is the frustrating part. So. So, yeah, it hurts me when I hear the all lives matter, because no one would ever doubt that in the eyes of God, everyone's made in the image of God. The problem is. You don't act like it. The problem is you're not respecting the image of God and people that don't look like you. So for me to assert it, I, I say in the book, look, I'm a product of the 70s. I remember James Brown singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And we actually needed that. We needed that anthem because we had been so beat down that we had, some of us had developed and even a racial self-hatred. We, we weren't comfortable with ourselves. And there have been, there have been psychological studies and such. I'm not going to get into all of that, but there's been studies to show how dehumanizing language and practices have been over the years made us even start to believe we were inferior. So we needed to be lifted up and to not understand that and to minimize that and say, well, everybody matters. It's basically the way of saying you don't matter because I'm just going to lump you in with everybody, meaning me, and uh, and ignore the unique uh, challenges that you've had to face. So, yeah, it gets me a little riled up, but mostly for the next generation. It seems to me, too, that um, if uh, there was a, a a campaign socially where, where they started saying people in wheelchairs matter, mm-hmm. that few people would react, it seems, with, well, wait a minute, people that aren't in wheelchairs matter, too. But that there's this charge of how we're threatened, how the majority culture yeah. white people are threatened by that. And that's a, that's it, a good point. Yeah, it challenges this sense of am, am I going to become powerless? I want to shift gears just to really honor your time. There's two more things I want to talk about. Sure. Salvation and anger. Yeah. Uh, you 
you expand and redefine the idea of salvation from something that is very personal and about me um, to the idea of liberation. And you say that salvation is about liberation. Can you unpack that? Yeah, just a little bit. I I, I feel like I'm uh, that's one that's going to be challenging for for a lot of evangelicals because they there's we've had kind of embedded in us about this transaction that takes place between us and God. And uh, we get, you know, basically get life insurance or heaven insurance or, or fire insurance. And uh, so there's this sense that it's very, you know, my personal relationship, a lot of scholars have been pushing on this to say, look, God's been at, at work in a cosmic way in the world. I mean, he's, he's turning over, what the devil has done. So there's, I mean, everybody from N.T. Wright, Michael Gorman, Scott McKnight, uh, uh, Joshua Jip. Uh, um, oh my goodness. I could think of a bunch of folks who have been saying, you know, but there's something about King Jesus. That means he's destroying the works of the devil. He is, he is reestablishing God's order and you can be a part of this. And I think that's what the gospel is saying. You can be, in fact, scholars have long been saying that when Paul talks about sin, particularly in Romans, he treats it as this, it, this, this, this force that imprisons you and enslaves you. And he says, you know what? Jesus came to destroy that. So you are free. You're free to do what's right. Yes, it affects my behavior, but you're also free from the shackles and the enslavement of sin. Um, and uh, and then I'll lastly mention an article in the New Interpreter's Bible by uh, uh, Richard Middleton and and, and uh, Michael Gorman that, that talks about salvation from Old Testament into the New and, uh, and, and talks about salvation as liberation. And the paradigm there is, of course, uh, Israel leaving uh, uh, Egypt. So that, I'll just put that out there. I think that's worthwhile for people to track and think, you know, my salvation is God freeing me from the clutches of sin. And related to this idea of salvation, you talked about how then once a person is saved, uh, for white evangelicalism, there's often an emphasis on personal morality and mm-hmm. piety and what you and and I love the phrase that I heard through Dallas Willard the first time of personal sin management and yeah. that we actually have a gospel of sin management. And you believe that that approach serves to preserve the dominant status of white men in our country. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'll try. I think because if my salvation is mostly about my personal actions, then I don't have to worry about the systems and the structures that are going on. This is what has happened. I mean, this is how I grew up. I mean, I grew up in a world where if, if for folks to be protesting, and this happened, I think, even for African-Americans during the civil rights movement, there are some churches that did not follow into what Dr. King was was trying to do and other leaders, because the idea of of speaking back to the power you know, meant maybe, you know, we don't, we're not projecting the kind of decorum that people ex- expect, you're not docile, not calm, those kinds of things. So the sin management of looking at whether I'm smoking or drinking or going to the wrong movies, while those things are important on a, on a certain level, they have a way of just of keeping people um, so fixated on those things that they're not thinking about power. They're not thinking about the way society is ordered. They're not thinking about the sinful things that are happening to people throughout the world. So that's what I mean by it can preserve that because our eyes are shifted on to worrying about people's individual, um, you know, uh, errors and sins that we start to lose sight of the bigger systemic issue. I say, say bigger, maybe broader systemic issues. Yeah. 
that's something that until I read the book, I didn't really think about how insidious that is. That kind of focus on external behavior, like here's the list of do's and don'ts. It's not only unhelpful for actual transformation, Mm. that doesn't Mm. lead to change, but it keeps people from having to take responsibility for bringing the kingdom to the here and now. Yeah, well said. And uh, and you would know better about how it might affect personal behavior because right? of your own story. And I like I like that you could connect it like that. But that's what I think. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of uh I want a both and not a either or, right? I want a both and I want to look at the structures and my life, right? I want to look at but but I think if I am if I'm preaching mostly to people as a pastor, let's say, and trying to get them to stop uh doing some of the obvious sins. And I'll think there's certain things that are obvious in the evangelical world anyway, related to sex and to alcohol or to substance abuse or different things like that, that we certainly would could readily come to mind. That, that's important. But if I, if I focus just on that, then it does uh, kind of allow me not to look at other things or even not to treat them as, as sin, just to say, well, you know, that's just the way society operates. And I think that was happening during, uh, during the slavery time. I mean, people were focusing on, on, well, let's put it this way. They were not focusing on the structures. Um, throughout the book, he said this in a number of different ways, but that the way that the white evangelical gospel has been preached in the USA is that it doesn't require us to reorient our life to Jesus and his life. It basically requires us to assent to a certain set of propositions. Wow, man, you know, you read that book carefully. I am so thrilled, man. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, I, I'm, I don't want to say that there are no things to believe, right? I mean, we have doctrinal statements, we have the Apostles' Creed, there are things that we believe for sure. But belief is, I mean, repentance, let's put it this way, which is built into this whole notion of what it means to follow Christ is a reorientation. And even and as much as we want to say metanoia means to just change my mind, most scholars will say, well, okay, the etymology has changed mind, but that really means change my whole way of uh, of looking at things. So it means I'm going to look at the world differently. I'm going to behave differently. It's going to, so that's what I mean by reorient my life. So I, I remember as a, as a young guy, when I was presented with the gospel, like um, four spiritual laws and those kinds of things, it was almost as if to say, you're doing okay. You could do even better if you believe these things. You know, if you, if you follow, if you pray this prayer, Christ is in your life. And, he, and the, the way the four spiritual laws said something like you, you would have your thoughts and interests instead of being random and disordered, they're now centered on Christ. Well, that's, that's a very kind of middle-class kind of a message. You know, I'm already trying hard. I'm already working. I already got, so if I add Jesus on too, then life could be even better. So it's, it's it, you know, and I, I'm sure Bill Bright didn't think of it that way, but that's the way it has come off, right? It's come off like, oh, I'm doing okay. I could do even better if I believe these things and ask Jesus to come out. It's not like, you know, the, this whole notion that my life is under this dominion of darkness, it's captivated. And when Christ comes, he frees me from this captivity so that I am free now to live a whole new way. That's, that's, that's the gospel, I think. Wow. Yeah, you, you define and um, uh, redefine, not in terms of making your own definition, but stay <laughs> in so many different ways and unpack what the gospel really is. And I Thank think you. your book is really a book about the gospel Amen. and having to look at the gospel through the lens of being a, a black man and issues in our society, but also just through the lens of the people at the bottom. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. I I didn't want to uh, start any theological controversy, but I did want to bring the scriptures to bear on our real life situations, and hopefully, you know, can upset the apple cart a little bit because we'll we'll start paying more attention to what people are saying. You know, with all the protests that were happening a few months ago, a lot of people on social media were asking, what can I read? What can I do? What can I do? And I thought, well, that's pretty good. But there's been a lot of books and things that have been out there. I don't think this is going to be like, let's read this book and then my life changes. I think it's like, that's part of the reorientation. It's like, wow, what would it mean if our whole society of Christians, let's put it, narrow the conversation that way, starts to pay attention to the way uh, marginalized people practice their faith when they when, when they weren't at the top, but in the bottom. And look how Jesus like that is. And so, if 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 that could happen, I think we would really have a revolution of Christianity. You know, I mean, it's, I, it, it sounds so. I mean, I know it sounds grandiose, but I I really mean that. Um, it, and so, yeah. Anyway, thank you for catching all of that. <laughs> I can get carried away and start preaching. So, but anyway, thank you. That was awesome. You're welcome. And I, and I do want to get to anger, but I just want to say one more oh, thing. Yeah. You know, I know that you could do this and this might be in the next book on humility that you're working on. But, you know, everything that we've been talking about here and that's in the book could be in the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Beatitudes, you know, those 10 verses. And so along that idea of how would society change is what if every Christian simply said, I am going to strive to live the the Beatitudes. And so I am going today as I get up to face where I am poor in spirit and where I need others and how I'm at the end of the rope and how I have this view from the bottom and how, um, contrasting to that, how there's something inside of me that's my ego or my sin nature that wants to grasp power, you know, and to to live that way and yeah. to be a peacemaker and to say that I'm persecuted and therefore I'm powerful instead of powerless. And I think you're right. I think we would see something supernatural and organic because Jesus and Christianity wouldn't be an add-on or a luxury. It would be an absolute essential, like yeah. oxygen to a starving person. Ooh, wow. That's good, man. I, you know, I, I don't even think I interacted with the Beatitudes that much in the book, but what you say is great. I, I think there are people who are already like in those Beatitudes situations. And I think uh, Dallas Willard might, might've said it like that, is that there's already people who are hungry and thirsty for justice. There's already people who are, you know, so, so maybe my being like that, if I'm not that, I look at them and say, who are these folks who are hungry and thirsting for justice because they'll be satisfied? So that it does pull me in a direction, right? And I think you're, that's what you're saying. I, at least that's what I'm hearing is that there's a, there's a pull to be like what is pictured there in the Beatitudes. I, I Oh man, I, I'm with you. I think that that would help us. <laughs> One yeah. of my Jewish friends who is a, a, a Christian, he says that the um, uh, Long Island Jews, that he grew up with would basically just tear Isaiah 53 out of their or, uh, older Testament. They didn't know what to do with it. And I think sometimes white evangelicals want to tear out, or we, we seemingly tear out the Beatitudes because we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I've heard many people make exceptions. I actually resonate a lot with Anabaptists who, who see uh, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount in a very um, 
helpful way and a challenging way to live as peacemakers and such in the world. But I do find it interesting because a lot of Christians I know, evangelicals, are very hawkish. They're very quick for violence, very quick to justify it, and and will run to you know some pastors in the Old Testament that show uh, Israel fighting. And I think, ah, maybe there's something that we're missing when we don't come back to the Sermon on the Mount. So, yeah, I think some people skip that one. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I don't want to take too much of your time. I'm actually enjoying this conversation. But you said you wanted to ask me about anger. Yeah, um, I thought the chapter and again, remember, I'm a psychotherapist. And so I thought the oh, chapter yeah. on anger was brilliant because oh, it, wow. it helped Thank me you. to understand it more deeply. But I want to read the James Baldwin quote. Uh, oh, yeah from a 1961 radio interview. And, and I had very little knowledge of who James Baldwin was until some of the documentaries came out and mm-hmm. um, a celebrated essayist and thought leader and novelist. And he said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. So that the first problem is how to control that rage so that it won't destroy you. And you looked at anger through a biblical lens, but also um, to what degree anger can be profitable, but not destructive. Yeah. Thank you for noticing that. that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, uh, more African-American writers have been talking about this and and trying to help people understand. Willie Jennings, I'll I'll raise up there. He's done. He has something on, uh, I think it's Yale's uh, podcast on uh, they do a public uh, series of lectures and not to take away from this conversation, but I'll, I'll shout that one out. And also my young friend, Esau Macaulay, who's really getting quite popular now in his writing. He has a chapter on black rage in his book, uh, Reading While Black. So my chapter, which we probably were writing around the same time, I didn't even know. I tried to um, center on a few passages. One was Paul say, be angry, but don't sin. Uh, another was, and then two in the gospel of Mark that are undisputed passages about Jesus anger. There's one that's disputed. It's a textual issue there, but, but two where Jesus is called angry. Another one is called indignant. Uh, and so the basic point to answer your question is that anger. And as you folks would say, it's a secondary emotion. It's showing us that something else is there. So when we get angry, it, we, it got, tri- something was triggered and our sense of justice is often what angers people in the margins. We get it angry because Something's not right here. Something, you know, is not the way that God would want it to be. That is okay, I'm arguing. And it, and it's okay to be riled up that way when you see it. And the problem is people on the top don't often see it. So I, I quote this point about standpoint theory that in systems of injustice, it's the people on the bottom that see the injustice better than the folks on top. So that's why the voices have to be raised so that um, that anger turns into some kind of uh, positive action. So I don't say that the anger is wrong, but I said to you earlier, sometimes, you know, when we get asked to speak in public and if we're angry, then why have a juggle say, I don't want to hear that person. He's angry. I've, I've been, I've been, you know, and if I come off not angry, then they're happy. They'll say something like, Oh, well, he wasn't even angry or something like that. I'm like, no, anger is, it's okay. It's, you know, the anger and the passion, Jesus had it. But at the same time, it's got to be the right thing. You know, we got people angry that they can't, that they have to wear a mask. I mean, that's, this is not the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about when you, it's not about some personal discomfort. Jesus is talking about anger over not letting children get their blessing. He's uh, upset with the disciples. He's angry over the, over the uh, uh, Pharisees worried about it Sabbath when this guy with the withered hand can't function well in society. So Jesus is angry at, at, at this situation. These folks want law and order. They want the Sabbath kept. And Jesus is like, there's a guy here suffering. 
And, 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 you know, so whether it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, let me do this. I heal the guy, you know, it's like make, make the point, but he's agitated over those things. So I think we should be agitated when we're worried more about decorum and not people's wholeness, or we're worried more about uh, uh, social norms than to have powerless uh, vulnerable people like those children have access to what they need. So yeah, I get riled up at that myself. And I feel like, okay, I'm angry. But as a Christian, as somebody who follows Jesus, what do I do with my anger? How do I channel this passion and frustration with that injustice? That's the challenge, I think. So how do we constructively, productively, and as I say that, I'm not trying to rein in like, ooh, we better make sure we don't cross that line because yeah. then it becomes a new kind of oppression internally. But how do we channel our anger in a way that brings real change and justice? Yeah, yeah. Well, great, great question. I, <laughs> I, I, I want to say that the answer is partly in, in genuine Christian community. You know, I was asked to speak recently and I, I had to record a message because it's, you know, because of COVID and everything. So I recorded the message that's going to be played somewhere. And one of the people in charge called me back that they were uncomfortable because because I sounded angry. And, and a lot of what I said was going to probably be frustrating for white people to listen to it. And I said, well, did you guys actually read the book? I said, because that's actually what's what I know is going to happen. I said, so when I got the invite, I thought you're new, you know, so so I, 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 I'm in this awkward situation of trying to uh, explain myself to folks who are, you know, they're struggling to to to, um, to to want to connect with me, but they're having a hard time with this. Right. So I think what you do with the anger and what I try to do is connect to Christian community where I can. And that's my thing about solidarity where I can find folks who also understand this way of Christ. Yes, they can feel what I'm feeling or at least empathize what I'm feeling and help us to, and then we can help each other together to say, what can we do or what, or how should we be? Because it's not a how-to book. I don't come up and say, okay, 10 things to do for the, I'm trying to say, look, if I'm part of genuine Christian community, then together we discern the will of God and whatever the circumstances. So if I'm in a church that's treating, you know, uh, you know, these kids unjustly or treating these neighbors unjustly, and I'm seeing that and I'm angry about it, I don't just storm out. I connect with a bunch of people and say, is there something we can do here? Now, if the church doesn't let us, that's another story. But, but I'm going to first try to find Christian community to help channel my anger. And I, and I have a very strong belief that in community. So I, I certainly believe that when Christians come together who are seeking the will of God together, that we can discern some positive ways forward uh, and take our anger and turn it into something that glorifies God. Perfect segue to, uh, to wrapping up. The last chapter of the book was The Power of Love. Yeah. And uh, I loved the the statement. It was something along the lines of First Corinthians thirteen. Paul didn't write that simply to be read at weddings, right? <laughs> that, that there, when it says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, keeps no record of wrongs, blah blah blah. Which sorry, to, that sounds like honorary scripture, but that there is a there is a fierceness to that, and that that kind of love is. Uh, disarming and disrupting and that therefore this power of love is not just ignoring ugly realities and hard truths. Wow. Amen. Well said. Dennis, those are your words. I didn't say it well. You <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't even know you were quoting me there, but it sounded like something I would say. So that's good. 
there's a there's a line in what you just were reciting from first corinthians where it says it um it uh rejoices in the truth and that rejoicing in truth means i need to accept the truth and find it delightful now okay some might narrow the truth and think that it's only like the gospel but I, i'm not convinced that that's all that paul would have in mind i think he wants for that whole community to be reconciled to be working together to have harmony among them so that the truth can be applicable in a variety of situations what's the truth so i think you know our country has struggled for for now these these centuries on how do we heal and part of the problem is we've actually had a hard time reconciling with the truth of what has happened in this country over exploitation or marginalization or minimizing or all the injustices. And uh, and some folks just want to strike that out of the education, just say, let's just talk about the good stuff that America has done. Well, you, you don't do that in a relationship. You've got to deal with all of the stuff in the relationship. So you bring the truth out, you deal with the truth, and healing can come. So I think that that's what love really should do. Some people have taken love to mean, look, let's just get together. We'll hold hands. We'll sing songs. We'll have potlucks. We'll you know do pulpit exchange. And, and some of those things are kind of nice and they're fun, but they're not ultimately going to get at the truth until we confess some things and put it out there. And say in the presence of God and others, like we even do at weddings, and we'll say in the presence of God and others, that we are not going to be like this anymore. And I think there's something powerful in that. You share a story at the very end about a friend of yours who was a speaker at one of the early Promise Keepers rallies. And how, and I was not at this conference, but I know somebody who was, where they did, quote, racial reconciliation and Mm -hmm. go hug a black man who's here. And how the, the, the friend or your friend talked to a person who said, yeah. Nope, I don't, I don't want that. I want you to right. go make friends with a black person. And so when you talk about the truth, it's yeah. in order for there to be the truth, we need to be uncomfortable because the truth always makes us. uncomfortable. Yeah, I know. And that's, that's hard because as I, as you say that I think about it in my own life, you know, whether it's my wife sharing something about our relationship, that's hard. And I've got to consider how I've been acting or speaking or, or thinking about, or, you know, at least the behavior that I've been projecting and doing. So, so truth can be hard, but it ultimately sets us free, as Jesus says, right? So, so when we, so when we, that, that's the thing about being, um, about trusting, about having faith in Jesus, because if he's ultimately concerned with our good, then our confronting the truth, while it might hurt in the short run, it ultimately is a good thing. That's if I really trust that he's a good God. And uh, so, so it takes a measure of faith, right, to, to do that. And it's not a matter of you just telling me the truth. It's a matter of putting the truth out there in the presence of God and others. So, so I, I, I have found that and sometimes when people have been hurting or have hurt others, there might be a little side conversation and they'll try to make that right. And I'd say, okay, but you damaged this thing in front of everybody. So let's see if we can bring truth to bear in a bigger, bigger way. Yeah, it could hurt, but it'll ultimately heal. Well, Dr. Dennis Edwards, um, mm-hmm. my second time talking with you, and it's been a gift both times, but oh, thank you for writing this you. book, Mike from the Margins, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. Um, wow. Our salvation is not in social media memes or even in individual protests, but it's in this. It's in the kingdom of God being understood oh, properly. Wow. Uh, so wow. thank you for what you're doing. I know you mm-hmm. pay a price for it, and I'm so thankful for uh you and for the gifts that God has given you. 
Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciated our conversation. God bless you. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.